Everyone thought the troubles in Northern Ireland were over long ago. Well, thanks to Brexit, they're back. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profits, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The elections of 2016 were unique to history in so many ways. Obviously, the election of Donald Trump on this side of the Atlantic, but in formerly Great Britain, there was the shock of the victory of the vote to make Brexit happen, to leave the European common market. Here in America, we're free from the curse of the 45th president, but in the United Kingdom, the effects of Brexit are just beginning to be felt. Part of that is the that the details of the breakup between England and Europe were only worked out finally in 2020. And all those who have followed the remarkable outcome of the British plebiscite are now witnessing the start of many unexpected ramifications of the Brexit vote. As our guest today, Kenneth Surin writes, Northern Ireland has now become the focal point of the UK's post-Brexit crisis. Bad memories of the troubles between British-controlled Northern Ireland and the independent Republic of Ireland have been reignited. Well, just to let listeners in on it, who probably haven't followed it because so much else is going on in the world, here's what's, what happened. Nearly 90 officers have been hurt in Northern Ireland's worst street violence in years after sporadic rioting in several towns and cities since the end of March 2021. Police use water cannons for the first time in many years. Crowds of predominantly loyalist youths supporting Britain attacked lines of riot police officers and vehicles with bricks, fireworks, and petrol bombs. On the night of April 7th, the fighting spilled over a so-called peace wall in West Belfast that divides predominantly Protestant loyalist communities from predominantly Catholic nationalist communities still uh, who want to see a united Ireland. Parts of Northern Ireland are still split along sectarian lines, 23 years after a peace deal largely ended Northern Ireland's troubles, which lasted almost 30 years and cost the lives of more than 3,500 people. It's unclear who is behind the unrest, but forces in the right-wing Ulster Defense Association are believed to be egging it on. Why the flare-up happened and what it has to do with Brexit and why it matters to us here in America is the focus of today's discussion. Kenneth Surin is our guest. He's professor of literature and professor of religion and critical theory. 
He trained initially as an analytical philosopher. His teaching areas include Anglophone literatures outside England, philosophy, critical theory, Marxism, state theory, and international political economy. And uh, he teaches now in these currently United States. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, You're welcome. Glad to be on your show. Well, just as a quick brush, you know, a reminder, Brexit was struggled about a lot. It was about, you know, English, if I got it right, English nationalism wanting to uh, be separate from Europe. It was partially based on the the immigration issue, partially just nationalism and thinking they could do it on their own. And then the vote surprised. It wasn't expected to go this way. I didn't think it was expected to pass back in 2016, but it did. So during the Brexit negotiations, I heard terms like hard border and soft border. But frankly, I haven't been clear as to what that's about. You write that Northern Ireland's Justice Minister, Naomi Long, pointed to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's alleged dishonesty over the still-to-be-decided Brexit border. Please fill us in. What's the story about the unresolved border issue between the North and Ireland relative to Brexit? Um. I think the simplest way to put it is this, that um, in order to get uh, a Brexit deal uh, by the requisite deadline, um, the Boris Johnson really fudged over uh, some issues. The most prominent of these issues has been uh, the position of the land border between Northern Ireland, which, as you pointed out in your introduction, uh, is is a part of the UK, uh, and on the other side of that land border is the Irish Republic, which is an EU member. So the fudge uh, that Johnson uh, agreed to is that Northern Ireland, uh, which is of course legally <clears throat> a part of the UK, right. Uh, will at the same time be within the EU's customs regime and part of the single market, there are some exceptions, where trade is concerned. And this is primarily uh, to ensure that there is con- contiguity between mm-hmm. the of Ireland. So soft border and hard border, what does that all mean? Well, the hard border would basically uh, require the imposition um, of a full customs regime, uh, uh, inspection protocols, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It would be the equivalent of the border between the United States and Mexico, say. Uh, Whereas the soft border would basically... uh, allow for a much more relaxed inspections regime, uh-huh. uh, freer travel between the two parts of Ireland, etc., etc. So what was this current, uh, dare I say, dust-up that's gone on there? How did, what, do you know what initiated that and, and what the, the fight is there and how the Brexit deal puts Northern Ireland in what you call a distinctive and somewhat anomalous Position. What do you mean? Um, well, 
Because we don't have a hard border. Um, the soft border arrangement that continue that existed before Brexit uh, is still continuing, um, and therefore there are you know there is toing and froing on this issue. Uh, should there really be a hard uh, border between the two parts of Ireland, or can we continue with this fudge where, in essence, a soft border exists? Now, the problem, of course is that uh, the two communities that you mentioned, uh, the Protestant and the Catholic, have differing positions uh, on what a border is going to entail. Now, a soft border uh, is an alarming prospect for Northern Northern Ireland's Protestants uh, because they think that a soft border will presage uh, a reunification uh-huh. with the South. And the Protestants, who are a majority right. in the smaller North, right. it would be subsumed uh, into the South and become a minority there. Um, so, and of course, uh, the Catholics in the North of Ireland, who basically have been ghettoized for a long time um, because they are the smaller community, um, would no longer be as marginal as they are now in the Protestant majority North uh, if the the North was reunited with the Catholic majority South. So um, there are different stakes at issue here. Well, what what might have caused this uh, actual fighting in the streets? What's that about? Who's fighting on which side and what are they fighting for? Is it it's about the Um, hard or soft border? Uh, you know, I don't think the border issue uh, is the focal point of this conflict. It's it's being used as a trigger, but as you pointed out in your introduction, resentments uh, mm. in the north of Ireland based uh, on communal separations have been going on for decades. And what this has happened, uh, what's happened now, is uh, the Northern Irish, I'd say both Catholic and Protestant uh, equally, uh, feel that they are second-class citizens Mm. um, in relation to Boris Johnson's uh, London-dominated UK. So, and this has been simmering for a long time. Um, Decisions are made uh, in London uh, often without consultation uh-huh. uh, in Belfast, et cetera, et cetera. And they really feel that they are pawns in this Brexit game. Um, so in order to be heard, uh, as is often the case throughout the world, sure. uh, the unheard use the riot as their only voice. Yeah. And I think this is what has happened there. Well, certainly, and uh, uh, people like JFK said where uh, reform isn't possible, revolution is the only thing that can happen. And Martin Luther King taught, it's just, it's it's inevitable, really, if people's voices are not heard, they can scream and scream and scream, and eventually, you know, as, as my old political science professor said, uh, politics is the economy of violence, and sometimes it does get to that. And you know, there's been uh, England used to 
ruled the world, you know, it ruled the, uh, the waves and uh, the sun never set on the British Empire. Of course it has, finally. And the, for many decades, there have been demands to make the island to the west of England, Wales and Scotland, i.e. Ireland and Northern Ireland, one nation, the Republic of Ireland. There's been fierce resistance by many, as you say, the, the Protestants mainly in the British-ruled North. In what ways has the uncertainty over border, as you say, made more appealing the prospect of a united Ireland, primarily for economic reasons? What would the economic benefits be specifically as it relates to Brexit of a union of the 26 counties of the Republic and the six counties of the North? Northern Ireland is currently in the economic doldrums, and the primary reason for this is that the movement of goods between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK um, is under uh, restrictions that were imposed as part of this deal between Brussels um, and the UK after Brexit. Uh, the since Northern Ireland is a part of the single market, right. uh, any goods that move from the rest of the UK into the north of Ireland uh, has to go through the equivalent of a regime that would be similar to the one, say, if the UK were exporting goods to France or Germany. Um, because to all intents and purposes where trade is concerned, uh, the north of Ireland is uh, still a part of the EU. Sure. Oh, it is. So, yeah. Oh. So firms which previously could move goods relatively unimpeded into the north of Ireland now find that they have to deal with paperwork and red tape uh, similar, in fact, exactly the same, as they would have to uh, go through if they were admit, if they were exporting those goods to France or Germany. So uh, some many firms have said, you know, this is too much of a hassle. It's increasing our costs, etc., uh, etc. Et we just aren't bothering to move any goods. This is the, uh, these are firms based uh, in the UK. Uh, outside Northern Ireland, it's just too much of a hassle for us to uh, continue moving these goods into the north of Ireland. Um, and so they've stopped. Um, wow. And at the same time, goods moving from the south uh, of Ireland, which is in the EU, faces a similar issue to, say, Germany or France exporting their goods to the UK. So it's a double whammy, um, and as a result, trade is in the doldrums. Wow. It is complex, and I, I still wonder how well it was really understood when the vote was taken in 2016, what the ramifications were, for, or if it was just uh, pictured more simply as, as keeping immigrants out. I... I do, do, people, do you think people understood it back then? And why hasn't there been a second vote? I know that's a loaded question. Well, uh, to answer your uh, second question sure. first, yeah. the reason there hasn't been a second plebiscite 
right. is that there is a groundswell of opinion which which, which would rise up, uh, whether it would uh, ensue in riots or not, we don't <laughs> know. But people would say a second plebiscite is really a barely concealed attempt to overturn the democratic result of the uh, first plebiscite. Sure. So uh, that was not on. I mean, for a while, uh, the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, tied, toyed with the idea of a second plebiscite. Um, but the overwhelming consensus, and there was something of a consensus, is that this would just muddy the yeah, waters too yeah, much, yeah. Uh, and therefore it was not feasible. Now, uh, as to the other question, what was the first plebiscite about? Look, uh, the UK does not have it, unlike California, for example, where referenda are a common occurrence. Yeah. The UK does not have a tradition of holding referenda. Uh, this was only the second one uh, in the UK's history. Wow. And of course, without experience of framing the terms of uh, such referenda, um, the referendum becomes a vote on just about anything. Uh, you, you pointed to some things, immigration, right. white nationalism, uh, uh, and, you know, a fair dose of out-and-out uh, -out racism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then others, especially in the north of England, which is the UK's rust belt, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, economic grievances, the feeling of being left behind, etc., right. etc., et were, were basically placed at the, uh, at the feet of the EU, uh -huh. rather than Thatcherite neoliberalism, which has existed in one form or another uh, in the UK since the 1970s. So all these grievances coalesced, um, and the result, which was a surprise to uh -huh. uh, the, uh, uh, the UK elite, um, uh, was we've got to leave the EU. Without without any clear notion of what that was going to entail. Oh boy! And, and the the mud, shall we say, is hitting the fan as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're speaking with uh, Professor Kenneth Surin, who's from the uh, Duke University in North Carolina, about. Uh, What's going on between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland as a result of Brexit? It is messy, uh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, it, it reminds us of some old ugly days of, of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Now, I know I, the economy is comparing the two, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the U.K., uh, the Republic is not. It's independent. There have been a lot of ups and downs, I think, in the economies of both. How is the UK-EU border issue affecting economic stability in the South, in the Republic, and in the North? I know we've gone over this a little bit, but more on that, please. The saving grace for the Republic in the South is that it is a part of the EU, and, of course, what right. the EU is doing uh, is basically ensuring that no drawbacks fall on the republic uh, 
uh, of Ireland as a result of Brexit, because it doesn't want mm-hmm. uh, the UK or that section of the UK, which is strongly pro-Brexit, to say, look, you've left your member state, the Republic of Ireland, in the lurch, um, and this mm. only confirms uh, our decision to leave the EU. When push comes to shove, you will just leave this or that member state according to uh. the convenience that it represents for you. You will leave them in the lurch. So what Brussels, mm-hmm. the headquarters of the EU, is doing is to make absolutely certain that uh, all economic backstops are in place for the Republic of Ireland to exist in relative prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the situation now. Of course, there are some trade impediments with the North, but the, the benefit from Brexit for the South is that UK firms simply send their goods directly to the Republic of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And these can then, because the Republic of Ireland is a member of the, uh, the EU, right. these can then be uh, uh, re-exported to Latvia, Romania, France, Germany, Italy, etc., without impediment. So with, uh, uh. a curious outcome of Brexit has really been a strengthening of direct economic ties between the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the UK. Interesting. Uh, because there will be less, uh, you know, th- there will be fewer uh, um, documents to sign, inspections to go through, etc., once those goods are in the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> so it sounds like the Republic of Ireland kind of has the best of both worlds. It's part of the UK as well as part of the EU. Is that right? Um from an economic standpoint, right. yes, but from a political one, oh, right. um, any uh, uncertainty uh, about uh, the political status of the relationship between the North and the South, uh, which could spill over uh, into communal factionalism, Oof. that, of course, is a disadvantage. And it has already been a disadvantage because we've had the, the, the rioting yes. uh, in the North of Ireland. Yeah, that is somewhat of a disadvantage, no doubt about it. And you write that Bojo, which not a lot of Americans are familiar with the term, Boris Johnson, Bojo. Bojo was warned repeatedly by the Biden administration, no less, that any Brexit deal which compromised the Good Friday peace agreement between the two parts of Ireland would run the likelihood of jeopardizing that peace. And as you say, these apprehensions are starting to be realized on the volatile streets of Belfast. And what is the status of that now? Is it calm for the moment or is it still, uh, you know, the embers still burning? Um, it is calm for the moment, at least going by uh, the press reporting of the situation. Um, but, you know, anything can trigger anything uh, in the north of Ireland uh, because it's a tinderbox. So a cop beating up a Catholic boy, uh, a Protestant cop, uh, because most, despite attempts to uh, make the police force less Protestant-dominated, it is still Uh Protestant-dominated. So a Protestant cop beating up a Catholic boy 
um, could just set things off. Um, vehicles being burned, uh, police with riot shields moving in, etc. You're familiar with that scenario. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, just, just by reading the reports on the north of Ireland. Um, so, calm for now, but the situation is fraught. Well, what again, what was the Good Friday Agreement to which President Biden was referring? The Good Friday Agreement, uh, I think the main platform of the, new, uh, um, the Good Friday Agreement was uh, relative autonomy for the north of Ireland. Uh, it would have its own parliament uh, called Stormont, etc., uh, etc., et and of decisions that were previously uh, the province of Westminster in London were offloaded to Stormont, so it could um, it could the principle was that having its own form of government uh, in Belfast would make that government more sensitive to the needs of the two communities uh-huh. in the north. Uh-huh. Um, and also, uh, this form of quasi-autonomy in the north enabled the north to construct a relationship framework with Dublin. So the ties between Belfast uh, in the e, uh, in the UK North mm-hmm. and Dublin uh, in the EU member South uh, could be constructed relatively independently of yeah. connections with London. Uh-huh. Um, and so this served as the basis for better relationships between two hitherto discordant communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a hard Brexit um, would basically destroy this framework that has ensued uh, in relative peace uh, between the North and the South and between the two discordant communities in the North. So the hard border would be, as one could picture, a hard border that have to be paperwork now. It's it's pretty open, I assume. I haven't been to the North of Ireland, but... Uh, uh, that that uh, obviously would increase tensions between the two. And I know that, that one thing Boris Johnson was hoping for was uh, the trade that was lost, British trade that was lost due to Brexit. He was hoping on enhanced trade with the United States. And as you say, he groveled desperately before Donald Trump for this lifesaver. Two questions. Was there any way trade with the U.S. could actually make up for the losses of trade with the EU? And how is the Biden administration likely to land on these issues as compared to Trump? Um, Well, this is partly in the realm of speculation. Well, in fact, it's entirely in the realm of speculation. Um, Well, why not? The EU... The UK lost so much trade with the EU uh, that even um, a trade relationship with the US would simply not compensate for what was lost. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Um, It would go some way, but it can't go all the way. Now, 
Trump was rather more accommodating of Boris Johnson <laughs> than uh, the Biden administration. Good. You will recall, uh, I think, when he was mayor of London, uh, before he entered Westminster politics, that Boris Johnson um, said of Obama uh, that he was anti-British because his father was from what had been uh, the British colony, Kenya. Uh Um, And then he, Boris Johnson, who is also a journalist, uh, or rather a Mm -hmm. pseudo-journalist, pointed to the fact that when Obama moved into the White House, he moved the statue of Winston Churchill that had been in the Oval Office, which uh, uh, Bush Jr., had put in. And so Boris Johnson said that this was symptomatic of um, Obama's uh, mm-hmm. uh, anti-British disposition because he was half Kenyan, etc., etc. Um, so uh, the Biden administration, which of course has many people who also in it, who also served sure. in the Obama administration hasn't forgotten that. (laughs) Uh, uh, And I think one former Obama official who uh, was asked to comment uh, on the question that you've just asked me, what's going to happen between the US and the UK now that we have a new administration, uh, that former Obama uh, uh, official, who is not in the Biden administration, I don't think, said, look, we're having to deal with a shape-shifting creep in London. Yeah. Um, so clearly, that signaled uh, a relative lack of warmth, <laughs> at least initially, between between Washington and London. Well, you may be an American now, but you haven't lost that uh, that British uh, understatement, which I always appreciate. <laughs> For those who may have just tuned thank in, you. yeah, thank you. Those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're speaking with uh, Professor Kenneth Surin about uh, Brexit, uh, UK's Northern Irish Brexit blues. It's getting messy over there now, and uh, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and certainly Trump and Bojo. I, my sense is they had some similarities in terms of personality, thinking very highly of themselves. And, I mean, hopefully Boris Johnson actually listened to people and read things. I don't know. But uh, they were close. And so that's that's got to get in the way between uh, uh, Biden and uh, Boris Johnson, I would think. And it's also true that Winston Churchill, for all his good qualities— he was pretty openly racist. I mean, let's face it, you know. Oh, und- <laughs> undeniably so. Uh, you just have to look at the historical record and uh, oh. you will see uh, that this is, this is the case. Yeah. Yeah, some of his uh, comments about people of India. Mm-hmm. Ah, getting off that. Well, you know, Go ahead. Uh, his famous remark when... Uh, Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, uh, came to London to further the cause cause of Indian independence. Uh, Churchill uh, described um, Gandhi as a half-naked fakir, Uh F-A-K-I-R, the Indian word for a holy man. Mm. Yeah, well, 
Then there were some massacres, etc. But, you know, (laughs) back to the EU. I understand. Tell me if this is right. Are they taking legal action against the UK for a breach of the Brexit agreement? And if that's the case, what is that about, please? Well, they've threatened legal action against the, uh, uh, the UK because the Brexit agreement signed between Brussels and London um, basically said that there had to be a certain border framework between the north and the south of Ireland uh, as a condition of that deal being signed. Now, Bojo, who, as I said earlier, fudged this issue, uh, is doing everything he can uh, to wangle out of that part of the arrangement. He's even talked of having um, a border um, in the sea between the UK and uh, um, the north of Ireland, etc. Or um, having uh, that border artificially set up, say, 10 miles away uh, from the current border in the north of Ireland. Uh, So he's all over the place in thinking of the positioning of this border. And the EU has basically said, look, our agreement said that there had to be a border meeting these stipulations. And if you try to wangle out of these stipulations, then we will sue you Uh for a breach of the agreement. Seems pretty clear. Yes. And and speaking of of, uh, Bojo, there's a great quote here from you. It says, Bojo doesn't give a rat's posterior for maintaining peace in Ireland. How can that be? Tell us about that, please. How can he not care about that? That's amazing to me. Well, I mean, I'm not going to engage in amateur uh, uh, psychological analysis, but nearly everyone, including his allies, say that Bojo is... um, narcissistic, um, deeply self-involved, not capable of involving himself fully with the standpoint uh, of other people uh, with different interests, etc., etc. And on top of this, on top of this form of sociopathy, (laughs) these words have been used in the media, they're not mine. comes an inability to master details, uh, a bit like Trump in uh-huh. that respect. Uh-huh. Um, he, he leaves briefs and documents to the people around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they have different versions of these briefs and documents. So basically, he's captive to whoever he's, li- to whoever he's listening to at the moment. Uh-huh. And the result is um, he... He, you, he has U-turns galore on the positions he takes. Um, he's not capable of mastering uh, a brief, and this is clear from his press conferences, because they are strewn with errors and pieces of misinformation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oh so Northern Ireland, uh, or the whole of Ireland, is basically um, not on his radar. Um, 
there you have it. Wow. How do you really feel? No, uh, <laughs> it does. <laughs> there are a lot of similarities. I mean, I, I got the sense that Trump didn't give a rat's posterior about pff, COVID or really anything except promoting himself. That is, uh, I, I like England. I like the UK. I like Ireland. I feel bad for you all over there, except you're here now. Um, well, Trump, speaking of which, was clearly influenced by Vladimir Putin. He always tried to make the Saudi royal family happy, too. Does Boris Johnson have similar ties? And if so, how does that affect perceptions of his leadership in the UK? Um, the situation with regard to Putin, um, well, here are the facts, uh, as far as we know. Um, London has basically become, I mean, the nickname given to London in uh, social media is Londonograd, as in Leninograd or Stalingrad or whatever. And the reason for this is it has become something of a haven for Russian oligarchs uh, to move their money into. Um, th there's very little supervision uh, of financial dealings in the financial sector in London. It's called mm, the City of London. Right, right. So uh, uh, these Kremlin oligarchs, several of whom have become very friendly with Boris Johnson, are able to move to shift their money uh, with very little oversight into London, uh, basically dominate its property market because oh that's the best way. That's the best way to launder money. Sure. Uh, uh, for those of us who are informed about money laundering, um, rather than keep keeping it in a bank uh, mm -hmm. where tabs can be kept on it, uh, you simply buy mansions. Um, and this is what the, uh, uh, the Kremlin oligarchs close to Boris Johnson have been doing. They donate heavily to the Conservative Party. Oh um, and the relationship is a little too cozy. Um, now, how far that extends into uh, Putin's uh, office itself, no one knows. But some of these oligarchs uh, do have ties with Putin. So who knows what's happening? Yeah. But I'm sure the British Secrets, uh, uh, Secret Service is keeping a close eye on such matters. Well, and Britain has long had an interest in the Middle East and in power and in oil. I wonder about uh, uh, the Saudi royal family. They, I can't help but imagine they'd be buying real estate uh, in London as well. Well, uh, both the Saudi r regime, which, as you know, is murderous, and the Gulf yes. states uh, yes. are really swamping uh, the... Uh, um, the UK property uh, and mm -hmm. development market. Mm. Sheikh Mohammed, one of the Gulf sheikhs, is, I think, the largest landowner in Britain after the royal family. Um, so that's happening as well. And, of course, uh, Johnson has refused to place an arms embargo uh, on weapons deals with the Saudi regime, which is committing... Uh, there's no other word for it, a genocide in, in Yemen. Yes. Um, 
And is oil the source of this? Uh, well, it certainly is. But the weapons trade, uh, as it is for the U.S., uh, with the rest of the world, is a very lucrative part of the British economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can depend on certain governments for that uh, part of the economy. Um, and I, I wonder if uh, Johnson, and Bojo, and the Northern Irish government are concerned about the upcoming elections in Scotland. Scotland has been toying with independence from London for a long time. How does what's going on with regard to the implementation of Brexit affect this possibility? There has been a surge in support uh, of the cause of independence in Scotland. There was a, a, a dip because of uh, the infighting that took place in the Scottish National Party between its current leader, Nicola Sturgeon, and her predecessor, Alex Salmon. Um, I don't want to go into the details of this because, uh, you know, it's a bit of a sideshow, really. Mm. But the upshot of this is that Sturgeon, um, who's a very capable person, she's rated much more highly than uh, any other politician um, in in Britain, um, did mishandle uh, uh, this uh, situation with regard to her predecessor, who had been accused of sexual harassment. And uh, Sturgeon launched an investigation uh, into this business with regard to Salmon. And uh, she uh, wasn't entirely candid uh, about certain things she said about the investigation Etc. Etc. So then, she, the result, the upshot is that she was investigated herself. She was cleared of any wrongdoing. Um, but this whole brouhaha uh, meant that bad blood existed between the two key figures mm. in the pro-independence ah, party. So there was a blip in support uh, uh-huh. uh, for Scottish independence. But I think consistently. The polling has shown that if a referendum on Scottish independence were held today, yes. uh, the vote would be in favor of independence. I would think so. And I would think that the Brexit situation probably makes it more, at least economically attractive uh, for Scotland to become independent. And just looking electorally, the United Kingdom is made up of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Do the winners of the UK elections have only to do well in England itself? Does the Conservative Party, the Tories, always have an electoral advantage in that case? And how does this translate into regional going along with it, acquiescence and acceptance? Um, you're spot on there. Um, basically, uh the UK, which has the status, um, more or less, of a federation, is entirely dominated by England, simply by virtue of democratics and population numbers. The vast majority of seats uh, in the UK Parliament are English. And then, of course, 
there is the fact that the Tory party is the minority party in both Wales and Scotland. I think the situation now is that the Conservatives have one Scottish MP, and that's it. All the rest are Labour in dwindling numbers and the Scottish Nationalist National Party. So the Tories have no presence in Scotland. They're also a minority in Wales, which is Labour-dominated. The perception in those quasi-colonies, which is the mm. only way to describe Wales and Scotland, uh, is that their fates are determined by the English. Um, mm. And, of course, this perception, um, whether it's right or not, I think it's right. Mm -hmm. It's a correct, you know, The people who think that they are in a position of subordination with regard to England uh, have it absolutely right. But this fuels resentment about ties to England and, you know, uh, just feeds uh, the impression that the Tory party is so England-centric. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't, it doesn't give a rat's posterior for Scotland or Wales. What about Northern Ireland? Are they Tory-dominated as well? Where do they fit into this picture and, you know, the tensions between them and uh, the Republic? Well, the full name of the Conservative Party is the Conservative and Unionist Party. So the Northern Irish Protestants have long had this deep affiliation. There have been some snags here and there. Brexit is one of them. Um, but basically there's been uh, a long and close relationship between the Unionist mm -hmm. Party, which itself is divided into two in the north of Ireland, um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and the Conservative Party in Britain. Um, so the Conservative, some Conservatives uh, are a little more concerned than Boris Johnson is about the relationship between their party and the Unionist factions, Protestant Unionist factions in the north of Ireland. And that seems to be the, the situation there. Well, you, you say, I mean, this is obviously true. The whole world has been hit hard by COVID-19, the UK included. And you say that Bojo is benefiting for now from a vaccination bounce. Is he counting on a big bounce from pent-up demand after the lockdowns? And if so, what, a, what about the true British economy is he missing? Well... You're right. He is suffering from uh, what's called a vaccination bounce, for which he can take no credit, by the way, uh, because the vaccination program is administered entirely by the National Health Service, which the Conservatives have been trying yeah. to undermine for a decade uh -huh. or more. Um, now, yes, there is the economic boost represented by the releasing of pent-up demand. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is not going to play out in a way that is entirely satisfactory for Boris Johnson. Now, uh, as I pointed out in my Counterpunch article, uh, there are two reasons uh, which counter-indicate uh, this rosy scenario. The first, of course, is, as was the case uh, in this country, many Brits lost their jobs because yes. of the lockdown restriction. And so these unfortunate individuals 
basically went into debt in order to sustain themselves while being out of work. And if they get jobs uh, after the restrictions are lifted, they will probably be paying off a lot of that debt rather than um, right. going out shopping. Buying new TVs, etc., new cars. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned new TVs and cars because the Brexit deal's weaknesses, structural weaknesses that bound the British economy will not be removed by a burst of short-term household spending. Uh, as you say, there are only TVs, fridges, and new cars that a household can afford or even need. Um, so this burst of short-term spending is going to peter out. Um, and I think these are two impediments to a hoped-for, sustained recovery of the British economy. Things are up for now, but they're not going to be up uh, for a long time. Of course. I mean, for a sustained period of time. Well, there, nobody really knows about the economy. There's always surprises there, that's for sure. But I think there's certain things you can understand that are pretty clear, and you got one there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Kenneth Surin, who's written an article on Counterpunch, a fun magazine, titled The UK's Northern Irish Brexit Blues. What about the Labour Party? Where do they stand in all this? And they've been, I know Jeremy Corbyn was kind of on both sides of Brexit. How are they doing since the ouster of Jeremy Corbyn? And how do they factor into this, if at all? Now, I have to say at the outset uh, that I'm a member of the Labour Party as a a UK citizen. Uh Um, Even though I'm based overseas, I'm allowed to be a member. Good. Now, the long and the short of it is Corbyn's replacement, mm-hmm. Keir Starmer, has been an absolute disaster. That's what I hear. Um, he has no public presence. Corbyn, whatever his faults, was something of a magnet. Um, not that he was a, a charismatic figure, um, but there was a patent transparency about him, uh, which, of course, could be a drawback uh, in these days of political cynicism, um, but he was, he was able to exude a certain warmth. Now, Starmer, who's a top lawyer, uh, basically has a loyally, a loyally, demeanor that just doesn't translate to people who come to his public appearances. And on top of that, he has tried And this has been his, if you like, main achievement, not boosting the Labour Party, but basically trying to remove pro-Corbyn, far more Uh left-wing elements within uh, within the party, using expulsions and suspensions, Mm. uh, etc., etc., to basically drive that socialist element uh, those socialist elements within the Labour Party to drive them out of the party and to return it to something like the party, the neoliberal party right. it was under Tony Blair. Ooh. In fact, right. he's described in social media as being Tony Blair Mark II mm. or Tony Blair Light. Oh, great. So, <laughs> and this is, not, this is not 
benefited him at all in the oh, opinion sure. polls. Oh, in sure. fact, that Scottish uh, parliamentary election on May the 6th right. will go alongside uh, elections for city councils uh-huh. uh, and local councils in the UK. That's very important. And on top of that, there is one parliamentary seat that is going to be contested, which has been held by Labour for about 50 years. And current polling there indicates that there is a real possibility that the Conservatives will take that seat from Labour. Uh. And if that is the case, losing a seat that you've held for 50 years, which Jeremy Corbyn, mm. by the way, managed to retain for Labour mm-hmm. in 2017, and in the uh, landslide Conservative victory of 2019, mm. Labour holding on to that seat uh, and losing it now mm. in 2021 will almost certainly precipitate a leadership challenge within the Labour Party. Well, good luck to the Corbynites, I must say. I, I'm kind of a fan of Jeremy Corbyn for many ways. Yeah. I'm curious why you say this. The violence in Belfast obscures, for now, the other drawbacks to the UK's ramshackle Brexit deal. Please explain that. How does it obscure the other drawbacks? The UK has a structurally unbalanced political system. We have discussed that a little bit, how that electoral system basically consigns Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland to the status of quasi-colonies. And so any upsurge of violence uh, in the North of Ireland Uh. basically directs attention away from that systemically unbalanced political structure and feeds headlines like, you know, you can never have a decent political system in the north of Ireland because any political system uh, that you arrive at will be undermined by tribalism, in Mm. quote, sectarianism, in quote, et cetera, et cetera. So these... These headline-grabbing, fake explanations, sectarianism, tribalism, etc., for a deeply ingrained, uh, unbalanced political system in the north of Ireland, these uh, headline-grabbing labels Uh basically deflect attention from those deep-rooted systemic problems. Uh, how convenient is that? I, I certainly have read about in the First World War when there was uh, struggles when uh, the IRA was forming and uh, Britain was concerned about uh, going to war there. Then there was the war in Europe, which, phew, boy, deflected all the attention. That show was convenient, unfortunately. Well, the struggles and troubles in Ireland, Northern Ireland, have gone on for so very long. How will this new component of Brexit affect the Ireland-Northern Ireland situation as we move forward, do you think? A little bit of crystal ball here. Well, the crystal ball is murky, but uh, there are a few cracks of clarity in the crystal ball. Oh, good. And I think there will be a growing impetus for reunification with the South. As the Brexit deal uh, starts to roll out, certain very clear disadvantages in it will become more and more apparent. Uh And uh, reunification with the South will become uh, an economically more attractive proposition, 
even to some Protestants, uh, uh-huh. or to many more Protestants in the normal. You see, it's, there's a generational uh, gap here. Uh, older Protestants in the north of Ireland have a much greater sense of this linkage with the UK. As sectarian violence subsides, and it has been doing yeah. uh, some flare-ups here and there since 1997, um, when the Good Friday implement, uh, arrangement was sure. implemented, the younger people in the South are less sectarian-minded. Um, they play soccer, uh, you mm-hmm. know, they're mixed uh, Protestant and Catholic soccer teams, uh, etc., mm-hmm. etc. They are much less attached to uh, the UK uh, than their parents and grandparents are. Yeah. So as this generation demographically shifts into prominence, um, there will be less resistance to reunification with the South. And uh, the murky crystal ball, I think, lets that tiny amount of light through um, Mm. and justifies uh, a certain confidence uh, in moves. They'll be slow and uneven, there's no doubt, but there will be moves towards reunification with the South. Well, that's how history works, slowly and unpredictably. Thank you so much. It's good to get a, a sense of optimism for the future. Uh, our guest has been Kenneth Cern, who's who writes for Counterpunch. I guess that's uh, the best place that uh, people can see your writing. Thank you very much uh, for having me as your guest, and uh, I've enjoyed our session. Thank you. Likewise, thank you. Commit genocide